Okay, church. So this is going to be the main text we're going to be in today. We'll jump around a few spots, but I want to want to really plant here in First Thessalonians. So I'm just going to give you the title to this right out of the gate. Because I want you to be encouraged by this message. What I want for us is this. I want us to have a life pleasing to God. As, as Paul puts it in a few different words, that we would walk and to please God in how we walk. <laughs> he wants us to be concerned with a life that, that doesn't just look to God in commandments, but that actually is pleasing to God Himself. So brethren, I, I want this to, to be that for you. And I hope my words would kind of resound what Paul says to the Thessalonians here. He says it a little earlier in the book, but he says this. I think the other two pastors could agree with this. Church, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-5. And church, I am. I am thankful for you. I am thankful to God for you. God has been faithful to all of you. And I really think that over this time I can say this, church, I, I believe He has caused us as a church, as a whole, not perfectly, not in every single way, but I really think in, the, in the, the few short years we have been doing this, He has caused us to walk faithfully and humbly with our God. I really think that. So what I want to do is exhort us, and, and I want to urge us in something, not because... I don't think we're lacking in this area, brethren, but as Paul says, that we would continue. Right? He encourages the Thessalonians throughout the whole thing, and he says, the word came to you under affliction, and yet you walked. You walked according to our gospel, and, and we give much joy for you. Now he's telling them all these instructions to say, I want you to continue to go more, 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 and more, to urge them. So I want us to be faithful and humble continually in church, and want to exhort us and urge us in this way that we would walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel we claim to believe in. And just that if we have been doing so, we would continue to do so, as Paul says, more and more. So church, our desire as we preach and we teach and we shepherd and do all these things is to see you being conformed to Jesus Christ. But as we consider that, Brethren, as we consider, and I'm going to be using these terms somewhat interchangeable of sanctification and holiness and maturity and growing up. Brethren, I think they all have the same idea here. But as we consider what it means to be conformed into Jesus, I want us to consider how we can grow up in maturity as a church. And I thought this text was a great text to turn us to on what are, what are things we can get as foundational principles within our lives and the life of this church that we would grow more and more into maturity as God's people? Because church, I, I desire, I hope you do too, I hope you think in your heart, the reason you raise your kids, 
the reason you get up in the morning to read or you stay up at night to read, whatever you choose. Brethren, you want to look more like Jesus. That's why you do that. And I'm sure you're of the same mind too. You want to be filled more of God's Spirit. And I think then one thing we can't fail to grasp then is what the Word of God says that the will of God is for our life. Do you catch that? One thing we can't fail to grasp in that endeavor of being conformed unto Jesus is a failure to actually grasp what God says is His will for your life. And brethren, the only place you're going to find that is where? His Word. And if we fail that, then we fail from the beginning. And I want you to imagine that for a second. I want you to imagine two things. No word of God, no will of God. What would your Christian life be like? Rather than be non-existent. You have no word, you have no direction. Church, you'd be hopelessly lost. You'd be like a stumbling man who is blind and in the dark. Even if you received sight, you wouldn't be able to see. You are hopelessly lost without those things. And we don't want to be fooled in this area, church. If we are to grow into maturity, then we need to grow up into the things of God. The things that He says in His Word is His will for us. We have to grow up into those things. We need, as Jesus would say, to abide in Him and He with us. For the one who abides in Him does what? Keeps His commandments. Brethren, where do you find those? Do you know them? So church, as those who grow up into maturity, we cannot hope to do this also aimlessly. You can't hope to grow up in Christian maturity unless you grow up in foundational principles of maturity, right? Everyone in here, for the most part, has kids, has kids who are grown up or who sees people who have kids. They do not grow up into maturity without basic life principles. And church, if the Bible uses that analogy for your spiritual life, it means the analogy sticks. If that doesn't happen in the physical, real world, it will not happen for us in our spiritual life. You just, you can't get the two. You can't look at someone and say mature, and they have no principles of which to guide their maturity and growth in. This is absolutely key for us. It is possible, listen, some of you know this. I know this is personal experience. It's possible to grow up in certain things you would be able to increase one's knowledge, your knowledge, expand your own understanding of the Bible, and all sorts of Christian things. And yet, you lack in the central foundations of Christian maturity. And brethren, you may, you may have seen people like this. You may have experienced this yourself. You may not even know that this was your life previously. But this kind of growth is deceptive because this kind of growth has the perception and the appearance of maturity. But what happens with this kind of maturity? Over time, shows itself to lack any kind of substance. Lacks any kind of life. And we'll get to what that substance is here, but let me just say this. 
often in the Christian life, I want you to hear this. This was in my own Christian life for many years. The temptation is to think, brethren, you are more mature than you are. Every time, even for us now, I have not made it. (laughs) I've not made it to full maturity. And it is very easy to think you are more mature than you are and more grown than you think you are, right? And and as that saying goes, you've outgrown your britches. It's not because the britches are too small. It's because your ego is too big, right? That's an idiom. Sorry, I want to throw that one in there. We talked about idioms the other day. But these temptations can range in this area. So I want you to hear what are probably the most common and then maybe some that are most at home for you. And I want to ask you, do you think these things are the sign of maturity in the Christian life? So first, someone says, I've attended Sunday school and church my entire life, never missed. I have served on countless volunteer groups. Our brethren, you run into those people out on the streets over here on Main Street, right? Hand them a Bible or a tract and they tell you, oh, I go to church. Oh, I serve all the time. Oh, I've never missed Sunday school. But we don't think that's a sign of maturity in the Christian life. Or two, I've read my Bible. I've studied it. I memorized verses for my life, right? John 3:16. I've accepted Jesus into my heart. I've checked that box off, right? Brother, once again, how many people do you run into exactly like that on the street, looking like the other people of Las Vegas? Maybe a little closer to home. Three, I've attended every prayer meeting and every outreach that the church does. Brother, is that the sign of Christian maturity? Four, let's get a little deeper. I've developed highly sophisticated and orthodox doctrine. And I have all the writings of the Puritans and Reformers. Look at my John Owen collection. And I can smell a heretic a mile away. Brethren, is that the essence of Christian maturity? Or last, I can debate and hang with the best of men doctrinally. I can see chiasms under chiasms. And I can parse every thought in the Bible. Once again, brethren, is that the hallmark of Christian maturity. Because these are the kind of things that may have the appearance of maturity, but brethren, listen, they are very easily deceptive. No doubt, listen, there's no doubt many of those things correlate to maturity. I'm not denying that. They can even be attributed to some level of maturity, like Bible reading, like attending church, like prayer. But brethren, you can, at the same time, possess everything in all of those examples, and yet you lack maturity. The reason for this, church, is because the sum and substance of maturity in the Christian life is not how much you know, is not how much you do, Brethren, as Paul is going to put it for us in our text, the sum and substance of Christian maturity in the Christian life is wrapped up in conformity to Jesus Christ. Or as Paul is going to say it, your holiness, your sanctification. That is where the test, that is where the sum, that is where the substance of Christian maturity ought to be found. Does that person look 
and talk and act and think and feel like Jesus Christ. That is the standard bearer, not any of those other things. Brethren, to put it another way, it's the Christian sanctification and growing up into the image of Jesus Christ that is the key indicator and factor of a Christian's maturity. Listen how Paul says it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Bible scholars, theologians, church attenders, any of those things I mentioned? No. To be conformed to the image of his son. Brethren, you want to harp on someone about predestination? You harp on them about that. Predestined for what? Foreknown for what? Who cares if you have that doctrine, right? Do you look like the one you were foreknown for? Do you look like the image of his son in order that Jesus Christ might be displayed as a real new creation, right? Brethren, if we don't image the son, we look at Jesus' resurrection and we go, not a firstborn of the new creation because you don't look like a new creation. And I think this is what Paul is making abundantly clear to us in this text. He's making it clear to us as well, church, that this maturity, this holiness, this sanctification is actually for Paul. He's concerned with one particular area in which he wants to see this displayed. And that's this, sexual purity. And he wants us concerned with it for one reason. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And brethren, to disregard this is also, as Paul says, to disregard God. So we need to hear this. We need to think, how can we as a church continually grow up into the mature man of Ephesians 4 that one day will be presented spotless before the bridegroom? I want to do this in three points. So I'm going to lay this out here in three points. So I'm using the word maturity, like I said, interchangeable with some of these other words, sanctification, holiness, growing up, conformity, all synonyms in my mind. So I'm going to go through three things. Yes, they all begin with the same word, but it's, I'm not trying to be cute. just trying to make you remember it. First one is maturity in God's will. Second will be maturity in purity. And then maturity in conviction. So we'll move through three of those of, I think, how this maturing or this conformity or this holiness is building in Paul's argument here until we get to the end. So let's look at this first one, maturity in God's will. Here's what he says. <clears throat> Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So church, listen, right here, right at the outset, you got Paul's burden right here for the church and ours as well. He wants us that we would grow up in knowing the will of God. Paul has been doing this for the Thessalonians, and I, I want you to kind of hear this because I think it'll, it'll help us in our application of these texts towards us to understand what Paul's actually doing in Thessalonians because how often have we read 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8? Like it's just another check on the Bible reading plan, right? 
and, and, we, and we just we never take the book in as a whole. But if you think what Paul's doing is he's really laboring here for the Thessalonians because does anyone know why? We just read Acts in that Bible reading plan. How long did Paul get to spend in Thessalonica? Not very long. A few months. Right? He hasn't been there very long. He's got to depart pretty quickly. So as Paul is very concerned, he has not laid enough apostolic teaching down for them to continue. He says at the beginning in 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, You received the word initially with great conviction, even under much affliction, and I praise God for you that I hear about that. But he's worried that if they don't send someone soon, what's going to happen? The tempter will come and tempt you. So Paul is laboring here to establish them more in the faith. And his hope would be, and his joy would be, that they would be a crown of boasting for him in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul makes it clear he has to do this because he's been hindered in this approach. He says that he's been hindered in doing so. His great worry then is that not that they're just going to totally abandon Jesus Christ, but they're going to start entering into things that would cause them to do so. Right? And I think this is important. This is Paul's Paul is emphasis here is to establish them more because what happens when you lose that, when you, when you lose continual growing and maturing in Jesus Christ, is you start drifting the other way. It's either this way towards growth or it's this way towards decline. And he knows that. So he doesn't want them to begin to walk in impurity and in wickedness, that the tempter would come and tempt them. And his worry is that they don't continue in what was already laid and what had been established by him and later by Timothy coming and helping them out is that they would drift away. And as Paul says, that our work would be in vain. Church, this is our great desire here. Right, having labored amongst you, for you, with you, that is our desire as a church, is to see you established, to see you rooted in the faith, that we could impart something more to you. I don't want you to just be okay with what you came in with. I want you to have more. I want you to continually have more. Because church, I know that if that doesn't happen, you won't be established. You will drift the other way. So our request is not only grounded in the desire for you, but as Paul says right here, church, it's a sure word. This isn't Paul just feeling feelings for the church. He says right there at the beginning, what is this grounded in? We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Paul is not just trying to get out his heart's desire. He is trying to get out what he knows will be the sure foundation for them to continue. And he doesn't take shortcuts here in doing this. He's not, he's not trying to cut corners as he's establishing these teaching and revealing the will of God. He's doing it in none other. And we need to pay attention to this. He's doing it in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might think, why does Paul always have to belabor the point at the beginning and end of every letter to thank God in Jesus Christ and to then bless them in Christ to the Father in the Spirit? Does, he just, does, does Paul just like tradition? No. Paul knows where he must get a sure word from. Brother, and his whole ministry is based upon not the opinion of men. I didn't get it from some establishment here. I got it from Jesus Christ. And listen, right here, why does he have to go at length to repeat himself that it's the Lord Jesus? 
He says it twice, right there. He says it twice in two verses. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. And then he says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus? Why on earth does Paul have to continually, continually repeat himself? And that's like, Paul, we got it. You have done that six times before you got here. We got it, all right? We, why, why do we need to hear that? Well, you got to think, why would Paul front load that here? Not every time Jesus is mentioned in the Bible is it always Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's Christ Jesus. Sometimes it's Jesus the Christ. So here Paul is front-loading that word intentionally. He's saying the Lord Jesus. And this is, should be good news for us. The Lord is the only basis for the charge because, brethren, he's telling you, I have gotten this from the Lord himself. I mean, I hope that's good news for you. Paul is not telling you to conform your life to something, and you're not sure if it's even from God. I mean, who wants to sit in a place like that? Brothers, people do. They sit in places right now deceived by false religion. Some man with a book tells them, you ought to live this way, and they shake their head and they do it. But they don't know if they have a sure word from God. Brethren, you ought to remember that. You obey, not because... Even Paul necessarily wrote it. You wrote it because he wrote it by command of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is no exalted man, but the Lord Jesus Christ is. And this exalted Messiah to him, the one who suffered under God's mighty wrath for you, what has happened to that Messiah? Brethren, did he stay dead? No. It's that psalm we read. I mean, you could have put it better. The Lord reigns. Right there at Psalm 97, he's been elevated. He's been exalted to the seat of power and honor. And it's from there. Think about now where the instruction comes from. Comes from the throne, brethren. He says, I received this from the Lord Jesus Christ. Where did Paul go and get that from? Brethren, he went straight to the throne room of God and got it. Think about that. When you skip over that again, he heard it from the Lord himself on his kingly throne the place where he's putting his enemies under his feet. That's where the instruction came from. And brethren, I think both of these come together for us as this, I know this is just a background to the first thing, but just this beautiful grounding of this section for us. Paul is laboring and he's longing for continued faithfulness among the church and to establish them. And he sees the need and the burden to establish the church is in nothing than their exalted Messiah. Both of those things. His, 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 his desire and intense labor in this has no connection apart from that. Paul is not a zealous religious man. He has seen the Lord Jesus Christ highly exalted. And that is why he is laboring so hard to see them continue in the faith. And this is the heart of Paul's instruction, that we, brethren, as we get to this first main section, that we would know the will of God in this. That we would know the will of God in our sanctification. Because, brethren, listen, what glory is in this simple yet profound statement? Right? All these, all these very brief, glossed over, we all hear, we say the word all the time, the will of God. But, brethren, God has not left you in the dark. Does that mean something to you? Brethren, you all walked in darkness. And what did the word of God mean to you when it came to you in the darkness? 
you realized how dark it was and you realized how good God was and you realized how much it meant that Christ died for you. Church, you used to be in dark and you wandered around as one who dwells in the night and it was the word that shone forth. And in that darkness you saw. And now, he wants you to continue to walk more in light. Not just from the darkness before, but to continue to walk in more light. Into this light that you were called. And as, as, as Paul says in a different letter, he says that we would go from one degree of glory to the next. Brethren, we want that. We want, as Paul would say, that we're going to grow up in the will of God. We're going to grow up in light. God has been clear. God has been good. God has been kind that he has revealed his will. That he has not been a silent God. And brethren, the debater and philosopher of our age, they mock this all the time. They say, if God is real, then why would he not just show himself to me? And brethren, that your heart would not stumble in the same kind of air, functioning just like the unbeliever. It's very easy for maybe your lips to never say those words, but your heart goes, why would God not just show his will for me? Brethren, don't say the same words that the unbeliever does, that the, that the foolish debater and philosopher of this age does. God has put them to shame in the raising up and exalting of his son. So brethren, may he put all unrest and all your doubts and all your concerns in your heart now to death. May he put them there that you would rest in the simple statement, God has not been silent in that for you. This is the will of God. And here is what I think we need to fundamentally know about the will of God. Brother, it's what he says right after that. It's for your sanctification. And you really need to grip that for a second. Because I think many of you want the will of God because you want, you want God in a genie bottle. Brethren, you often want God in an hourglass, pulling Him out and, and seeing how things are happening or how much time you have left or whatever it may be. You just want God to give you answers all the time. He's the magic eight ball. God, will I get this? God, will I get that? God, will you do this for me? God, will you do that for me? And he says, this is the will of God. Not so you treat God like that. It's for your sanctification, brethren. That is the reason God has even revealed himself is that you would look like something. And that's important for us because, listen, there are, and I know there are because I am at times, anxious inquirers about the will of God in this room. Brother, and I have in, at times inquired about where money is going to come from for my family. I've been an anxious inquirer. But you know what? The anxious inquirer regarding the will of God, listen, it will only be found true, and you will only be found true in trying to discern the will of God if it's informed and guided in seeking your sanctification in the Lord. And I want you to hear that. If you're seeking out the will of God, apart from your desire and care to be like Jesus and to look like Him and to be sanctified like Him, to be holy like Him, brethren, you are searching in vain for the will of God. The will of God is tied to your sanctification. You look to your sanctification first and God will help you in the rest. 
God has revealed in his word that the will of God is your holiness, your setting apart, your conformity. And anything not revealed in the word of God, brethren, as it pertains to things, yes, that God's will would pertain to things in your life that the Bible does not say. But they will never be sought. They will never be found apart from seeking to honor Christ, to have Christ honoring and Christ glorifying sanctification. You won't ever find it. And there is one thing we need to know about this sanctification. Because church, listen, I think we read stuff like this, and I think in some, in some sense a good thing. We are in circles who care about holiness and sanctification. But often what this can do to us in our hearts is it turns sanctification into a sort of what I don't do or the things that I check off that I try to avoid. Right? So we, we tend to so when I say we think about this in a negative fashion, I don't think we think that it's negative in the sense that it's bad, but we think sanctification is a negative process where all God is doing to me is getting me to stop doing stuff. And what I want us to see is that is a very short definition of what the kind of sanctification in life Paul would have for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, as sanctification relates to the Christian, it has a much greater weight and it has a much greater aim than simply trying to get you to stop doing bad things. Paul puts it like this, and we've already read this, brethren. I want you to grain this in your mind because I think this is what Paul is getting at. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Or he puts it another way in Colossians 3.10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of who? Its creator. Or Ephesians 4. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Brethren, the ultimate aim of Christian sanctification and holiness is conformity to Christ. That means much more than you stopping a few sinful tendencies in your life. Because in all ways, brethren, we want to be like him. We don't want to be just like Christ and what he wouldn't do. Of course Jesus wouldn't do certain things. Jesus even says there are certain things that he abhors. And we want those things. But we want it in every way, right? People want to say all of Christ for all of life. Well, I want sanctification for everything, brethren. I don't want it in just the things that you're willing to not do because the Bible says don't do them. I want you to abound in everything. And I think this gives us a much greater and much better foundation as to what Paul is going to get for us as he starts to develop what this will of God is in our sanctification. Brethren, it means we're going to be being built up positively and not just negatively in certain things in the Christian life. But here's where I want to hit our second point, because I can't focus on everything. We'd be, I literally would be here for weeks on end. 
So I want us to focus on the main thing that Paul focuses on here. And that's my second point, that there is going to be a maturity and purity among people who are being sanctified by the Lord Jesus. So here's what he says, beginning here at verse 3 again. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So our maturity then, brethren, our maturity, our growth and sanctification, as Paul is concerned here, is that. And we need to be okay with saying these words. Because we're, like probably a lot of us in here, you don't have families that grew up talking about this. Someone says sexual in the church, and it's just like a weird thing to say in the church, right? Just gives people weird things, weird thoughts. That's because we live in a world that's been sexualized. And that's because when we think of sexual impurity, it makes us very uncomfortable because we realize our past. We realize our sinful heart. We know our desires. We know the things that run through our mind when nobody else can hear them or read them. We know what can be brewed in the idol factory of the heart. But brethren, we, we need to see Paul is trying to just very plainly for you, listen, God's will for you in your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality or to put it a positive way, that you would be sexually pure. And I think it's no small matter that Paul goes here when discussing what's foundational to the will of God in our sanctification. Brethren, throughout the Bible, from Genesis, I'm, and, I'm not, and I'm not even playing on the Genesis Revelation theme, okay? But from Genesis to the end of Revelation, the one thing you see condemned over and over and over and over again, from the beginning to the ones who will never inhabit the city, the new heavens and new earth, is what? The sexually immoral. Never will enter those gates, brethren. So Paul, I think, is, I don't think Paul is, you know, doing the, uh, you know, I don't want to use the slot machine analogy, that's bad. You just think of like the randomizing machine. There we go, right? You click something and it just pulls up a random answer. And I don't think Paul is going, what could I tell them about the will of God for them? He hits the button and, you know, 20 topics go by and boom, it lands on sexual immorality. I don't think Paul is bringing this up because it was just the thing he could really, he really felt like he could talk about in the moment. I think Paul is front-loading this because of how much this is foundational to any kind of biblical ethic and biblical sanctification. Brethren, it is a staple of biblical fidelity in the entire Bible. And the resounding call and warning for the Old Testament, right, for the people of God was to be holy in this area. And if you guys are, you know, reading the Bible plan, we're, I mean, we have just, it's crazy how much we've read, but we have pretty much now covered almost all of Israel's history. As far as written history, before you get commentary from, you know, the prophets of what's about to come on them or what has happened to them or the Psalms commenting on what has happened and what's going to happen in the future, that whole plan, we have read through so much into 2 Samuel, you should be able to see in just the brief survey in there, brother, how many times were the patriarchs in Israel and kings told, do not go after foreign women. I mean, I don't know if you guys counted. It is like on every page in the Old Testament. And you're like, why does this thing keep coming up? And brethren, it's because it's so serious to the people of God looking like God's people, right? That's what Israel was supposed to do. And when they did that, 
they ceased to be that. They started to corrupt themselves. They started to go backwards. Who did they start to resemble? Started to resemble the nations. And all the way up to Solomon, brethren, those people are warned time and time again, do not intermarry with surrounding nations. Do not give uh, daughters from them to your sons. Do not let your sons go and marry their daughters. Do not take wives from them. Brethren, in doing so, what happened? They fell into sin. But what always came about with sexual sin? Idolatry. Every single time in the Old Testament, sexual sin enters in, idols come running in behind them. Every single time. And what happens once idols come in? They forsake the Lord. Men do what's right in their own eyes. Men do not call upon the name of the Lord. And Paul warns the Corinthians against this. In, in 1 Corinthians 6, that text that Nick read for us about sexual immorality, what does it lead to? Brethren, you're joining yourself with idols, with prostitutes. These, these prostitutes, no doubt, in pagan temples. It's the same thing. Sexual immorality causes people to wander off into idolatry and to forsake their God. Brethren, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Brethren, I think Paul's beginning here. Because sexual purity is absolutely foundational for you to grow into maturity and into sanctification and into conformity to Jesus Christ. Not only in your obedience, but brethren, in what you look like. And, and some have said this, and I think this is true. I, I've, I've always heard the saying and said the saying, but then reading it from the Bible, I realize where a wise man of God got this. But the first rung of Christianity is sexual purity. Brethren, and now I understand that. The Bible is just riddled with this idea that when God's people become sexually impure, they immediately slide off the deep end every time. It does something that no other sin seems to do in the Bible. Because what did sexual impurity do to the nations in Romans chapter 1? It says, God gave them over, brethren, to the most vile and corrupt passions known to man. Brethren, it was the fall of the Gentile nations into total darkness was through sexual impurity. And brethren, in the Christian life, failure in this area of maturity, failure in growing up into this in the Lord Jesus Christ will cause one to be unfaithful and will cause one to disobey and will cause one to result in idolatry and ruin. Brother, notice Paul doesn't begin and just end here then with this abstain from sexual immorality. And this is key. This is kind of the crux of his whole thing right here. He doesn't just say abstain from this thing and now we're moving on, right? Don't do some sexually immoral stuff, right? Don't go sleeping around with people. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Don't, don't go getting wives who are not Christians. Don't, you know, don't, whatever you can think of, brethren, in your mind or what you don't want to think in your mind, he is not just saying abstain from those things. Because honestly, that would prove unfruitful for these Thessalonians. To just tell them a bunch of things to not do, 
Just abstain from that. Don't, you know, don't do anything else. But he gives here a command that ties in this, this positive aspect to his prohibition. What does he say? That each one of you, here is how you are to abstain, brethren. Here's how you're to abstain. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Brethren, the way that you abstain is not just trying hard enough to not think about all the sexually impure things that you may think about or the sexually immodest things you, you used to do or still do. Whatever the case may be, brethren. It's, and I, you hear this with guys all the time. You hear this with testimonies of men who are just enslaved to pornography. And, and, you, and I've sat down with guys like this before. You sit down with them and you talk to them and you say, okay, sin and temptation came up. Well, you know, what did you do? So well, I sat there and I just, I tried not thinking about it. And I tried telling myself, abstain from sexual immorality, flee from immorality. And then what did they find themselves doing five seconds later? They're right back in all the filth of immorality. And brethren, it's because they're just repeating commands to themselves. They're just telling them commands, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. But brethren, they're not taking hold here of what Paul is telling them to take hold of. And that is the way you abstain, is not to just know the commandment. Yes, brethren, you need to know the commandment, to abstain from the commandment. But you need something else to match the, the commandment. You need an ability to be able to come in and to control yourself. It's not just abstention and you don't think about it, brethren. He's telling you to abstain from these things by having self-control. Now, you might have a note here. right? Some translations may read that each one of you know, and then you'll read down in your note how to take a wife for himself. You could possibly translate this verse that way. I don't think that would be the best interpretation. I don't think that meaning is outside of the scope of this, but I don't think the context would fit such a narrow interpretation of this word here. As in some passages of Scripture, right, the woman is called, what, the weaker vessel? Same word here used for body. So some passages or translations go with that. But I think he's hitting on the fact as the church as a whole, brothers, and that means brothers and sisters, you, all of you, abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you, all of you, know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Brother, we need to hit on this one for a couple things. And I need to say this. So he's going he's gonna to clarify how one uses self-control in this way. It's going to be in holiness and in honor. And I think Paul at the end in 8 is going to tie that holiness with the Spirit. So let me just clarify here with the beginning. I don't think Paul is contradicting himself as he does in other places, right? It says the law comes in and what does the law do through sin? It just causes me to sin more, right? The, 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 the commandment comes in and the commandment itself does not have the power to do it. The commandment's good, Paul says, but with sin, the commandment gets twisted and I sin so that the commandment actually becomes a stumbling block for me. But I don't think Paul is just telling them, just learn how to control yourself. Just learn, just learn how to exercise self-control. 
It's going to say there at the end, if you disregard what I'm saying, you're not only disregarding man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And I think there's a connection there with holiness and the spirit of being able to work these two things out. But I want to just begin there at each one of you know how to control or brethren, another word to possess. Especially not all, of course, the women in here, but especially the men, men, we live in a sexualized culture that is prime for your heart to wander off into all sorts of ungodliness and all sorts of nonsense and all sorts of evil and vile things that your eyes or your heart could produce. And we need to not have the excuse within our own lives and within this church that we are somehow and will forever always be slaves to sexual impurity. Paul here in this section gives zero ground for a man to be able to say, I'm just going to struggle with porn the rest of my life. I'm just going to struggle with sleeping around the rest of my life. Brethren, I can just never get those thoughts I love thinking of when I'm asleep and no one else is there with me. Brethren, no excuses are given in the Bible for sexual immorality. And one thing that the world does Brethren, and they, they do this to a degree, but they put Christians to shame when men can go watch some seminar or video or whatever, some guru or teacher, and tell them, hey, listen, here's 12 rules for your life. Have a little self-control. And you know what lost people do who are down in the dumps of their sin and they want to get out of the nastier ones? What do they do? They exercise self-control. And yet we have Christians who think, not only can I not do it physically, which, brethren, I'm not even calling you towards, Paul doesn't, but you can't even do it the way the world does. Brethren, you do not be deceived, especially you brothers. As someone, as a young man who has lost in all sexual sin, I had to read this passage at a very young age and be convinced of what it said. Otherwise, brethren, you will forever drown yourself in sexual impurity. And brethren, I'd be afraid that you drown yourself and you never come out of it. So brothers, my, my, my encouragement, but exhortation you would be is, is to read this passage and believe it. Paul says, the way you can do this, the will of God, the thing that he wants for you that you can actually do is to abstain by having control of your body. And brother, not to get too graphic, but there are many commentators who think that what Paul is using as a euphemism here is to talk about body parts, and that's all I'm going to say. Brethren, don't be controlled by your body. Don't be an animal. Don't, don't be a slave like beasts of the field are. An impulse arises, what do they do? They attack, they hunt, they eat, they sleep. They just do what comes naturally. Brethren, may it not be in your heart that when the sin of lust and sexual immorality creeps in to tempt you, you don't give way like you are just some helpless victim or some animal who just responds to impulses. Brethren, he says, each one of you ought to know, not just a knowing here, a knowing intimately how you can control your own body. But brother, notice he says it in two ways, holiness and in honor. And I think this is the connection down here to the spirit, right? The, the holiness, the sanctification 
coming from the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And I know I'm tying other things in here. I know the text doesn't say this per se, but I don't think you could understand Paul's thing here or verse 8 very well without this. But in holiness, brethren, we're understanding that this kind of control not only has certain biblical parameters, but also has a certain source, right? All of those passages in which we discussed holiness, being conformed to the image of the Creator. Brethren, those all have a source of what you are being renewed in. So I think Paul is telling them, each one of you ought to know how to control yourself, your own body, in holiness and honor as it relates to God renewing you. That you learn that intimately, one, with what God says He is doing for you as you read scripture and as you understand what God does for you, but then also how he says then to put on the new self. Brethren, having been made new, live like a new person. Put on the new self. But also, brethren, getting back to a stricter definition of holiness, it must be self-control in a way that is biblical. It cannot be one you think of in your mind. Right? And people do this with sin. Right? I'm not the first one with this analogy, but people take sexual sin and they raise it up. They, they bring in like a little cub and like a tiger and they think it's real cute. And they can set certain parameters. I'll lock it in its cage when I'm done. I'll make sure it never gets out. I'll be sure to feed it, but you know, not too much. And I'll make sure it doesn't hurt anybody. And then one day that thing becomes you know, full, full grown and it devours you because you thought you could put that sin in a cage and in a box and you could just manage it. And he says, no, that is not the kind of control you ought to exercise over your body. You ought to control yourself in holiness, brethren, separation unto the Lord. You go to the word and you see what God says. And he says, you flee it every time. You abstain from it every time. Brethren, you put it to death every time. And you make no provision for the flesh. You don't make excuses for your flesh. And brethren, this also means this too. And in honor. Now I think there's a few, I think there's a few things Paul is tying in here with honor. One, brethren, that you would understand what this battle is for what your self-control is for. It's not just for honor among men, brethren. It's for honor among God. That God would honor the man. That God would honor the woman who puts themselves in the position of seeking to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in controlling their passions. And they seek to honor the one who has made them new. But church also this holiness of being conformed to how the Bible says we ought to do it in this honor. Brethren, this kind of control of our vessels, of our bodies for holiness and honor, it needs to be done in a way that, yes, we honor the Lord Jesus and the commands of Scripture. But brethren, that we're, we're doing it because we actually think that it's good for us that there is something honorable in doing this, right? What, what kind of man is going to sit there and battle against his flesh and, and, and take control of his own vessel? He doesn't think there's anything honorable in doing it. He sits there and it's just a fight and it's just a brawl he was thrown into and he doesn't really like it, but he's been told he's got to fight it. Brethren, you have to believe that there is honor in doing this that each one of you know how to do this in honor as well, that there's something honorable about treating yourself 
and of controlling your vessel and your body in such a way that it honors the Lord. You have to be convinced of that. It's like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, brethren. They were unending. Who's going to be the man to take all those sacrifices day in and day out? Only one who has faith. He's the only one who's going to do it over time. Brethren, the same here. The only one who's going to do this is thinking that in holiness and in honor, there is something holy and honorable in doing what you're doing. But brethren, we have to believe that. There is not just potential, but a real reality God has made that you can, not that you might, but that you can abstain by controlling yourself. Controlling your passions. And notice how he says this. Not in the passions of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Everyone, you, you need to think about that he's using that example for you. Don't do it in the way the Gentiles do it. Brethren, even though the world can clench their fists and, 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 and tighten up and lace up the boots and put some real grit and grind to not doing certain things that a lot of people, even unbelievable, you know, unbelieving people think is disgusting, that is also not our example. We don't look because think of where Paul is pulling this one, the passion of lust like the Gentiles. Brethren, that's Romans 1. What do the passions and lusts of the Gentiles get them to? God says, I give you over. That's what happens when you follow after them. Because brethren, they don't put their lust in check. Not in a biblical way. They put some in check and they embrace others. And they continually embrace lust. And brethren, you'll find that in your own life. That if you embrace trying to do this in some worldly kind of way, you won't just find yourself losing a lust and then finding God. You'll just find a different lust. You'll just find something for your heart to cling to other than what you normally cling to. Then he also gives us another reason right here. And this is where I think the honor comes in and the holiness comes in as well. That, here in verse 6, no one would transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. And brother, we need to think about this on this level are being built up into the image of Jesus Christ, of our sanctification, is one in which we need to understand our sexual purity and our sanctification is not one in which we, we look up to and think, am I good here? But what is the outworking of my sanctification as it flows out into the people sitting next to me? Because brethren, if, if that... If the case is that one does transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, and here's where I think the other translation could come in, that people were not learning how to possess their wife for themselves, but they were doing some other kind of things. Like you get over there in Corinthians, possessing other people's wives, not having self-control or exercising control in an ungodly way that is actually hurting the brethren, that is actually coming in and, and transgressing one another. And he says, no, that no one, would transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So church, we, we need both of these to function together. These, these, these Both of these things come in and they balance one another out. How am I living sanctified unto the Lord in sexual purity? Well, part of the way I can tell, how is it affecting the people around me? Am I transgressing and wronging my brother in this matter because of how I seek to control my vessel? But here, brother, <coughs> excuse me. 
here, brethren, is where he is calling us into. A very serious calling. He says here, because, here's why, no one ought to do this. That you ought to take the sanctification seriously for Christian maturity. It's because the Lord, the Lord, here's the Lord Jesus Christ again. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Brethren, Paul is confident about the Thessalonians, and I am confident about you, but you have got to hear that for all it's worth. Though I love our church, though I think we are walking in step, though I think we are established, brethren, if we don't take this call of maturity and sanctification and control of our bodies seriously, it will not just be your brother who you wrong. It will be the Lord, and He, brethren, is an avenger of wrongdoing in his church. Peter says, and all, and all the apostles say this in, in, in all these different ways, right? Where is judgment going to come and start? It's going to start at the house of God. And brother, we make no mistake, that is not just Old Testament. The Lord is always an avenger of his people and wrongdoing. And Paul is reminding them, I've told you this, and listen, this is a solemn warning. This is not harsh, but this is serious. If you have violated God's standard here, and if your like, life looks like one that is unsanctified in this area, unset apart, unconformed to Jesus Christ, there is a warning for us. The Lord's an avenger in this. And brethren, here's how this will help you in life. You think about some of the preachers and teachers who have gotten caught up in sexual sin. And I'm not talking about money bags on TV. I'm talking about guys who you had their Revelation series. You listen to it. You got guys who you bought their books. You got guys who I am sure at one point as they began ministry, at one point when they began to follow after the Lord, they never thought in a million years, I will wrong my brother in this, and I will not take the Lord's command in this seriously, and I, will, and, and I won't think that the Lord will be an avenger in this matter. And then the Lord's vengeance comes upon them. God comes and avenges His name, and He judges them. And these men have great falls. And brethren, that I think is why that solemn warning is there for us. It's to remind us that this thing can and really does happen to people who don't hear. Brethren, this is God's will for you. Don't throw it off. Don't cast off the will of God because you think there's something else God has for you that God doesn't have for you. And in this, brethren, don't be deceived like the world in thinking that sexual purity and sexual faithfulness to God does not matter. Because, brethren, verse 8 is my last point. It says maturity and conviction. Here's what I mean by that. Brethren, I, I think all of us here would agree with this. We would read this. We would say that if I disregard this, I am disregarding God. And the one who gives his spirit, I think, to exercise that kind of control. But that's not the real test. 
Brethren, the real test of the maturity of your conviction that you take verse 8 seriously is your life. Don't be fooled that by saying the words and nodding in agreement that somehow you're in agreement with God and that you don't disregard God's will for you. Brethren, you can disregard God's will while all the, all, all the time claiming that you are trying to live out God's will and you are in God's will. But brethren, your life will be revealing of your understanding of this, of the seriousness of the matter. And also, brethren, your life will be revealing of where you actually think the source of this comes from. Because brethren, as, as passions arise, how strong are those passions to persuade you? They are strong. They're very strong. They may not be to the degree for some of you as they were when you first became a Christian, but temptation comes to you as one who is weak. And the temptation has a sort of power, has a gravitas to it. You see the temptation and you just feel like, if I don't do something, I'm just, I'm just going to get sucked into this thing. And you need to think these passions these, the, this thing that I need to come in and have control in, this thing that I need to be convinced of is God's will, is because, brethren, in the moment, the power and the weightiness of that sin will feel more real at times than the promise and the will of God explained to you here in Scripture. It will. The Bible does not promise, and brethren, I wish it did. In glory, it will be one day. No, nothing will ever tempt you. No power will ever pull your heart. But brethren, here and now, the Bible does not call you to obey this simply because you feel it in your heart. Right in the moment when it happens, brethren, I want you to feel that. My desire is that you feel that. My desire is you always abound in that. But sometimes it won't. And you need to know the will of God for me is this. I will not be drawn in to that thing because God cannot be disregarded. That is not from Him. That is from God. And if I do so, I disregard the very spirit that I say that I have. Brethren, I want you to just, we need to grow in that maturity and that conviction in this because when the battle rages, you will need the maturity in that conviction in order to exercise that control and in order to grow in your maturity in conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And brethren, I want you, as you have been, to walk more and more in maturity and in conformity to Jesus Christ. So listen to what God says, for this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Let's pray.